Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and welcome to the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I love to work with CEOs and teams on their people stuff in leadership, and I'm always amazed at how much you can learn about people across a career. My guest today is one such person. His name is Rory Byrne. He was born in the UK and came to Tassie as a young fella. He started working life in public service, went on to own a restaurant, and then got into fishing and aquaculture. Then he ended up being on the Professional Fishermen's Association of Tasmania. He became the Fishing Industry Training Board, which then became the Seafood Training Tasmania, and ultimately Seafood and Maritime Training. That's a lot of training in the seafood industry down in Tassie. And he had leadership roles from executive officer and ultimately CEO. And in our conversation, we talk about lots of really interesting tensions that leaders have to navigate. And one that I love the most that Rory showcases beautifully is how to balance having a warm heart and strong hands. So it's about the balance between wisdom and compassion. And uh, I think he demonstrates really well how difficult that tension can be and how important it is too. So we're going to get into it. And if you enjoyed this interview with Rory, please share the podcast. It does a world of good to other people to hear these great stories. And it helps me a lot too by promoting the podcast and growing our audience. So if you like it, please share. In the meantime, let's do it. Rory, so excited to have you on the podcast. Welcome all the way from Tasmania. Yeah, nice to talk to you, Zoe. You've had a bit of a world traveling experience. You said that uh, as a young fella, you came out from the UK and ended up in Tasmania. How did that actually happen? Like, what was, how did you end up over there, from there? Yeah, look, I was um, Irish background, brought up northeast of England, came out. Mother died when I was quite young. Father took us all out here. He was a doctor. We ended up in a big hospital in um in New Norfolk there for a while and then ended up in Hobart. Most of my life I've been in Hobart and surrounds, yeah. And you didn't start off in the seafood industry, but that became your career. You actually owned a restaurant at one time. Yeah, well, look, I did the usual route. You know, when you leave school, you, you, you know, the usual route is either university, public service. I did a bit of both, a few years in the public service, which I, I quite loved. But then I had lots of friends that were in the food business and Two of us got together and we had a restaurant, the Italian sort of restaurant for a couple of years. Then I had a few years of um, vacillating, you know, which, again, is quite common, especially for young men, um, you know, a little bit of building. And then got into the fishing industry and then into sort of aquaculture mainly. We had a, a oyster mussel farm for about 15 years, a number of farms. And I did that together with, you know, I represented um, some industry groups, you know, professional, was a secretary of the Commercial Divers Association, that got me onto the, the side of training, um, that got me onto um, what were then industry training advisory boards. And that was really my, the start of my sort of so-called professional career. It was, you know, more, more advisory management than, than hands-on, yeah. I, I did a stint on the Arts and Recreation Training Advisory Board here in Canberra. <laughs> So it's a it was a weird beast. <laughs> you what they were like, yeah, 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 very interesting. So you've had a meandering road into the seafood industry, and then have been there for a long, long, long time. And in a lot of that time, you were in leadership influence roles. Can you tell me through that experience how have you come to define leadership? 
Oh God, that's I, I guess looking at leadership without attempting to define it and, and, and cap it. Leadership, I guess, is the ability to influence people in a positive way. I mean, if it's business leadership, you know that business has a name. That aim is to, if you're for profit, it's to make a quid. If it's a non-for-profit, it's to serve your members and, and look after your staff. Never forget the central component of staff. I guess that's it. In a nutshell, it, it has to, you could say leadership could influence people towards a negative aim, and that would still be leadership of, of a sort. You know, I mean, you look at um, the different governments that do terrible things, they still have leaders, and you could argue that, well, not very good leaders because their purpose isn't good, but the aspect of the leadership can still be good for a bad purpose. Uh, at least I, I think, you know, narrowing it down quite a bit, but for me, leadership was bringing a few positive ideas into people's minds, very importantly, listening to their views and adapting your ideas from their input and going for a common purpose, trying to instill a common purpose. Mm. So I'm curious about like one of the parts that you said, like I, I like this idea, like leadership is influence. And then you made the point, you can be leadership for good, influence for good or influence for evil. And you've circled back to saying, well, I tried to have influence for good. How do you define what is good? Well, well, I, I guess the purpose of your organization, you know, I mean, there's your own individual, you know, attributes, your own individual ideas, goals, values, and there's the values of the organization that you work for. Now, if they're in sync, that's great. And sometimes the, one of the challenges of leadership is you may be challenged to compromise or, or make some difficult decisions. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, you may have decisions where staff are presenting some difficult issues, you know, and you, you know, you might have a paternal approach or then you might not want to deal with them harshly because you've got this view of yourself as being a fair person. And, and sometimes you have to crunch the numbers and just say, you know, these are my own personal beliefs to be kind and altruistic have to slightly become second to the interests of the business. That's always a tough call for leaders. How did you work support yourself through that? Very poorly. <laughs> I was not very good <laughs> at all. I think anyone that knew me in my business approach would say that I was um, that was one of my weaknesses. It was often a, a regular challenge that underperformers got away with things because I always saw the positive aspects of their where they were performing okay. And I was reluctant, always reluctant to judge people on their worst side without taking into consideration their best side. And I always saw that as, as part of the team. I didn't always persuade my uh, members of the management team as well as I should, whereas they, they would have preferred me to be more blunt and, and cutthroat. But I always believe and still do that in a team, you don't always have to perform at the same level and different members bring different aspects and attributes to that team. And sometimes they can be fairly invisible till a member goes and you think, oh God, they did bring something to the team, you know? So um, I would not use the same yardstick to judge every member of a team and encourage other, other members to not to judge too harshly, too quickly. Mm, I think that's, um, that takes a bit of nuance and diplomacy to be able to manage that, you know, with, People have different expectations of what should happen in a team. Through your leadership experience, how have you come to define success? 
Um, in the end, we tend, especially for my position as having just retired, we tend to judge that really personally. You know, what was success? There's obviously the financial aspect, you know, did the organization that you managed, was it financially successful? Did it meet whatever uh, benchmarks that you set for it, you know, year to year and long-term strategically? And so if you tick those off, but in the end, um, success is an individual is, did you do some good? You know, did you actually achieve something? Did you, did the organization that you managed led, did it have a place that if it wasn't there would have meant that some good would not have been done? You know, and I ran a training organization in a pretty niche market and we were the, and we did a lot of good things, you know, that I'm quite proud of. And we had a great team, you know, that I guess one of the things is setting a little bit of a, of a template for people to follow you, you know, and I know, you know, people follow you, follow you always have their own ideas, but at least there's a template there that sets, you know, this is a sort of organization that we were, this is, these are the values we had and seeing that I think successful, you know, um, employing people in these current times is success. You know, we have a whole new yardstick for success. We have a, Breathing oxygen is near. <laughs> Giving your mental health is a success. Um, so I think that's it's sort of, I say that flippantly, but I think it is, it's a little bit more than serious that, that in times like this, that your idea of success does change considerably. And I think we get a softening of, um, hopefully as a society where we are a little bit more considerate and considered of others and not as harsh perhaps on ourselves as we could be. I like that. And it is my wish through this pandemic experience that people come out a little bit more kind to one another and to themselves <laughs> and uh, that we become a more compassionate society. You've been talking a lot about team. How do you go about building a strong, cohesive team? Well, I think the main ingredient, what's the main ingredient of a good team? Well, the significant and important ingredient of a good team is having people that are of a similar mindset, not the same, but similar. So in other words, they recognize the purpose and in that purpose, they are willing to carry it forward and they are open to ideas, they are generous. That's a often understated attribute of a team. If they're generous, things work. And by generous, I mean, they are not too willing, too quick to judge, they are generous with their time, with their energies, they are considerate, um, and of course they have to have the right skill and talent, but often, surprisingly, that can come second. You know, if they have the other attributes, those soft skills, the team will work. Someone will fill the gap, they will be nurtured. Again, I'm talking about people with the skill level, you know, an accepted skill level, and a balanced team too, so that the, the team is, you don't want everyone in that team to be of the same mindset you don't want everyone to be you know the leader of the team you know you have to have people that will accept certain roles and work happily in those roles but listening is a really good attribute and and it's one that the more i older i get and the more i learn and read i think it's a skill that is so underrated even in me i'm i challenge myself to be a reasonable listener but then i realize how bad it is i really am <laughs> How do you reckon you're bad? How do you discover you're a bad listener? Um, because 
you want to tell someone your story before I listen to your story. And I'd be learn much more if I listened to your story. I know this is a different. <laughs> yeah, I'm interviewing you. <laughs> I'm to get my story, yes. But apart from that, you know, that someone always has something to say. And if what if you want to establish a relationship, you want to get the best out of them as a leader. Listen to them. See what. Listen to really what they've got to say. Get to know them instead of always having an agenda. And you want to be part of that agenda. And one of the things that I would say in hindsight that I could have done more of was to. Um, Superficially, I was thinking I was an okay listener. Sometimes that was a bit superficial. I could have done better and listened and listened better. And when I see other people that purport to be good listeners, and I can just tell they're not. What's the response? How do you analyze that response? No, you haven't. You know, you're just racing through. So yeah, so listening is a, is an attribute that I would really encourage people to take seriously in in management. Don't dismiss ideas, and and even if you're underlings want of a better term it's so important to them to be heard and in a busy life we just tend to to want to dismiss the views you know and, and sometimes there's a good reason for dismissing the views they're just not bloody good views you know there's a lot of opinions out there that you really have to gently say look i'm sorry this is just not a good idea the consequences of this would be disastrous but for the sake of the, of the team and the organization Views are people take ownership of their views. They value them, so that they're, they're a currency which we, we treat too casually sometimes. So don't don't dismiss those views too readily. So it's, it sounds that's a lesson born of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> it is God, yes. <laughs> Can you tell me about a time where you where you felt like you made a big mistake and how you recovered from it? Ah, oh, big mistakes. Look, I I don't. <laughs> In a work context, I personally, and I can give you heaps of them, but restricting this to a work context, big mistakes. Um, an example would be pursuing an agenda that you thought was in the best interests of the organization, but you hadn't brought the organization on board. With the CEO's role, especially in a non for profit that I work for, you have a fair degree of independence because your board is, you know, meets irregularly. So it meets regularly, but infrequently. So there's a lot of uh, authority and, and power invested in, in that role, more so than perhaps for a commercial enterprise, for profit, I should say. So, yeah, one mistake I made was always looking to align our organization with a big player in terms of financial security. And I don't think the industry supported that or many of my board members they did occasionally you know and of course board members change and their vision changes but i i often had the vision that um to maintain security you should align yourself with the big players in town whether they be you know universities tafes colleges things like that we were always a you know relatively small the biggest player in a niche market and i guess if you use that that sentiment is take people with you don't rush off with ideas that you may not have the support of your organization. I mean, mold them over. What, what it does, of course, is it, it makes things glacier-like in the implementation sometimes if you've got to wait for people. And we just get impatient. We want to hurry along with things and we think they're good ideas. And yeah, but it's one of the, the curses of, um, of not being a despot, I guess. <laughs> You have to, you have to uh, consider the views of others 
even when you're on brilliant ideas, they can't see your own brilliant ideas. I'm not sure you, you just advocated for being a despot. <laughs> there are some advantages, I guess. You sort of do what I say and that and it's done. I mean, you know, you, you go you go to Italy and you scratch the surface of any Italian uh, of a certain age and, and mention Mussolini and they'll always say, well, at least you got the trains running on time. You know, so <laughs> I always think of that the, uh, the example of, um, you know, the less the less consultation you have to do, the quicker you get things done. They're not necessarily all good things, though. Yeah, that's right. And that's not always true either. No, uh, it's not, no. I think about the construction of the um, underground metro in India, which uh, was not run by a despot. It was run by an incredibly powerful leader who um, led through inspiration. And when I went to India a few years ago to to see the infrastructure that they built underneath Delhi, which is quite amazing, they finished that project ahead of time and under budget at every stage. And it was not because he was militant in the execution. It was because he inspired people to a vision and it was the quality of him as a leader and how he treated his staff. Like he made room for people to meditate every day on site. And so it was a really values driven leadership, but you know, that still requires a lot of personal organization. And I think there's a, there's a fine balance. I don't think it's all or nothing. And when it comes to being a despot or being a benevolent dictator, <laughs> benevolent inspirer, um, but what you talk about, though, is that the default to just do as I say is a trap that many leaders fall into because we are in such a hurry to get things done. And there is always a cost to it. And as you say, there's the glacial implementation when people are not on board and uh, you need to spend some time persuading them, as opposed to if you set up from the beginning in a consultative process and ask questions and did a buy-in development piece around it, it would have been better. I like that as a lesson. That's a tough one. When it comes to the people stuff in leadership, what have you found easy and what have you found difficult? Um, it's really easy working with enthusiastic people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> joy. It's nice to work with people who have similar values to you. Um, when you come across people that have dissimilar values, it can be quite challenging. By that, I mean, you know, when you work with people for a while, you get to know whether they're generous or a little bit stingy in a sense of emotionally stingy and they can be tough to work with what do you mean by emotionally stingy uh, just not generous you know not necessarily generous with the time not generous with the way they they deal with other people in terms of helping them when they need help not cognizant of other people's personal issues and how they impact in the workplace i mean you can't isolate if, if someone comes to into a work environment and they're having emotional problems unrelated to work they still impact on work and you've still got to deal with them you can't just shut them out and say um, oh no that's nothing to do with work just take that away from here you know you have to deal with it and, and deal with it as compassionately as possible and a lot of people will get on board and just you know work through with other staff members other members will just say no keep that away from work you know that's that's a separate issue you're here to work you know it's the old Dickensian way of looking at it so, so what was the question again, Zoe? I'm kind of on a tangent. <laughs> uh, the first part was, what do you find easy? And so you talked about enthusiasm and same values. And when it comes to people stuff, what do you find the most challenging? You kind of bled them into the two, like when people have different values. The, the difficult things, I mean, obviously, you know, a good work ethic is, is a pleasure to work with. You know, if you've got someone with a good work, the right amount of cheerfulness and light and, and a work balance, so they bring some joy to the workplace. 
um, whether that be, you know, getting the job done in a cheerful fashion with a lot of anecdotes and the right amount of personality. On the downside, um, the doomsayers, you know, will all be killed. People are constantly bring, not constantly, but bring problems without solutions. Problems are okay, you know, like sort of problem challenges as we call them now, but the right team member will bring a solution or a partial solution with every with every issue as it comes up. They're good to work with because you know they're not living in a fool's paradise. They're not blind to issues. And the opposite, you don't want a Pollyanna either. You know everything's rosy, everything's good because they're just dangerous. You know you find out <laughs> a ship's sinking and no one told you there's a hole in the hull. You know you could have patched it a month ago. So they're terrible Pollyannas. But on the, on the other side, so are. Um, the doomsayers, if we don't do this, we'll all be killed, we'll be bust in a week, you know. How will we survive this? You know, some regulator will come and murder us, they'll shut us down, you know, and you say, come on, you know, let's get some balance here. Luckily, I didn't have to deal with too many of those, but I I did see aspects of it in, in staff members over the years. And, of course, we tried to discourage it and, and did, did, I think, largely work. But then personalities, you know, some if you have a belief, I can throw all the facts in the world at that belief and it won't change that belief at all with some people. Beliefs are, you know, that the tend to be uh, fact-proof in some ways. By throwing facts at people's beliefs, I think often we're wasting our time. I think that's a really powerful observation that you just made around that. So beliefs are fact-proof. And if you're trying to change someone's mind, get them on board with something, did you ever end up changing someone's mind? Yeah, look, I think I think I did. Yeah, you know, I often, not often, occasionally, I should say, uh, sitting them down. Um, often a, a change of mind was more like seeing their point of view, acknowledging what I could in that point of view, and then getting them to moderate that point of view. So not, not a complete sea change of the change, but more a moderation of it. And I think that worked occasionally, or regularly, yeah. I mean, a, a complete change of view was, you know, in, in terms of an open discussion over minor issues, yes, of course, that happened regularly. Over big issues, though, it tended, you know, people, people's entrenched point of views just tend to be that entrenched. Have you ever had your point of view turned around? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, God, I, I mean, one thing that I did think I did reasonably well was to um, listen to good ideas. And another thing that I tried to do is if I had a good idea, make it seem like it was someone else's idea as much as mine. I think that's, you know, it's an old corny thing, but it does work. If you can make someone else think it's, um, that they have ownership by, you know, being there at the conception of the idea, then I think it has much more chance of success. You know, in a small way, business ideas and, and what we did and our direction and things, I was often influenced by people, especially my 2IC, you know, who was, who I had a good relationship with, who's now the CEO, by the way, so that was a good transition. Yeah, we'd often bounce ideas around about what to do. And, you know, I would hopefully persuade him and he would persuade me. Those are about ideas, though. What about beliefs? Have you ever had any of your personal beliefs turned around? One thing that is my beliefs are, you know, when you look at real core beliefs, I think they're pretty solid, but pretty few. You know, so I don't have this this huge variety of myriad of, of beliefs. I have a few precious ones that I hold true and they're solid. So um, 
I haven't had those changed really, I don't think, in my life. My core beliefs have been pretty much the same beliefs. You know, I might be taking your question too narrowly, but I'm not sure. Okay. Would you mind sharing them? Is that okay? Oh, well, you know, beliefs about um, compassion. You know, I tend to be a bit left-leaning, I suppose. So, um, uh, you know, religious beliefs I have, you know, I came from a sort of Irish Catholic background and I still hold those beliefs, which are more humanitarian, inclusive than anything strict. I mean, you know, these days the religious right is is as far from the from the religious middle ground as is, you know, the spheres apart. And so, you know, without getting into any discussion about religion. But I think the basic humanitarian aspects of, of all good religions, whether it's you know Muslim, Hindu or Christianity, there's a solid group of core beliefs that talk about um compassion and inclusiveness and and uh you know seeing the stranger as uh, as important as we are and all that stuff i think society's lost a lot of i think we've become a meaner society so when when i talk about beliefs those core beliefs have stayed with me all my life and that's perhaps why i wasn't such a good manager you know because the the conflict between some of those beliefs and being a good manager often i had to deal with didn't deal with them that well i think that's a, a lovely thing that you raise actually is and you mentioned it earlier too, is this balance, the balance that you need from having with a compassionate heart and yet still having wise action. And the balance between the two can be challenging if you're more heavily weighted on one rather than the other. Yes. And it's about the need to be sensitive as well as sensible. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes, you know, the, it's the utilitarian approach that it's the greatest good for the greatest number. You have to sometimes incorporate that, you know, and that does sometimes mean that that someone is worse off, but you have to minimize that, I guess. The challenge is, is to minimize that, be as, be as generous as possible without sacrificing the, the unit, you know, the organization. And that, that's a challenge for management, you know. Not, not everyone is a perfect mix for that team, for that mm. organization and identifying that as early as possible or trying to get improvement in performance is a, is a challenge. You've had lots of different people that you've interacted in many different contexts over the years. What's the most surprising thing you've learned about people? Um, I'm not sure if surprised, you know, from my looking back, did anything really surprise me in hindsight? You know, I'd have to say, oh, I should have realized that, you know, I should have been more more intuitive, I should have been more aware that someone would react in that way. One thing is people's ability to misread um, is, I think, you know, they will jump to the wrong conclusion. I was quite staggered by sometimes by some staff members' ability to misread what I thought was a pretty straightforward comment because they read it out of context or they had just made the wrong assumption. So, so be careful, the need to be careful and considered in what you say. Sometimes that can, can become, you know, like treacle. It can slow down communication. If you have to be so considered and careful of everything you say, it just doesn't work. You have to, um, what makes a good team and a good relationship is, is a certain amount of the right intimacy. I mean, knowing what, where people's barriers are, and dealing within those barriers. But don't be too precious. Preciousness is a killer, you know, people get precious. And sometimes people would, would get precious, you know, the people could change 
So I guess answering your question, what surprised me was people are not flatliners in terms of their performance, their emotions, their ability to work as a team. They're, they're more like a wave. So, you know, you have people that will come in full of enthusiasm and ability and teamwork then, you know, six months, a year, two years later. God, you know, it's Jekyll and Hyde. They've gone off the boil for some reason altogether. But then, you know, you nurture them, they come back on. And we had a very stable staff. Compared to small organizations, we had a staff of, you know, 10 permanents when I left and about 20 casuals. Now, some of those people have been there 15 years, 10 years. None of them have been there for less than about seven years, I don't think. So very, very secure staff. Everyone, I think, by the news, one or two, it had long service, you know. So there were, again, that can be a good and bad thing. People say, you know, too soft an organisation. I don't want to stay there that long, but I <laughs> reject that argument. As the CEO, judging their performance, I would see this, uh, waxing and waning, everything and flowing of performance over a long time span. It was like um, I didn't see any, some were more consistent than others, but everyone had a, had a peak and trough compared to their performance. So, you know, people go off the boil. What do you think is behind that ebb and flow of that peak and trough? I think a lot of it is, it's, it can be personal issues, family issues from the home environment. Uh, mental health plays a big part here, you know, there's, there's all sorts of stresses and strains. It can be just uh, complacency, you know, familiarity, comfortable with the, the job, the job not being seen as rewarding, all those, those things you can imagine, you know, that, that lead to a sort of malaise. But then people come out of it. That's the other thing, you know, it's like a relationship, you know, you get in you know, you wake up one morning, look at the person lying next to you and think, God, what have I done? Really? But then you realise all the time, you know, there's give and take. It's, it's not a flat line. Neither should you want a flat line. You know, you want a bit of contrast in life, a bit of shade. And, and with people you work with and their ability and their performance, it does ebb and flow. So part of being a good manager is managing that ebb and flow managing that variety of performance. So, you know, not perhaps demanding the same level all the time, but, but realizing that their personal issues that they bring from home are as important to them. And of course they impact on, on the work. Work can be a, a refuge from a difficult home life. It can also be part of the problem work if things aren't going well. I think that's a great observation about the, the, the ebb and flow. And uh, I often say to new managers in particular, um, what they're finding, they discover that 80% of their job is dealing with people stuff. I'm like, well, if you think if you have 10 staff, as, as you did, each person might have one major issue they need to confront in their world each year, at least, then that's at least one a month as a manager, if you have a team of 10. If you have a team of 20, well, double it. You know, you got two issues a month you're dealing with. And then for organizations that have thousands, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, just constant. I have one last question for you. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? See, this is me not being a good listener. I can't remember anything, Zoe. <laughs> no, only joking. <laughs> no, only joking. Uh, best piece of advice I've ever been given, God. I should, you should have told me that in advance. I probably did send it to me in advance. I didn't, so there you go. I caught you yeah, on the hop. Oh, you may have helped. Um, best piece of advice. Oh, 
I don't know if I'm confusing advice I've given myself or advice that other people are giving me, but one of them is definitely don't be too hard on yourself. Do not be too, too exacting. I think that's a great piece of advice. Don't punish yourself over small mistakes. In the end, so many things in a work and a personal life that you think were important just aren't. I love it. Because if you can do that, if you can be objective and, and fair and kind to yourself, you're much more able to make good decisions. And I think in management, a lot of people, a lot of managers reflect too much on their mistakes and ignore their successes. Because, you know, so, well, I did it right, so what? You know, I got it right, I'm paid to do it right. But when you make a mistake, oh God. But the alternative to making mistakes is not taking risks. And you have to take risks, both personally and, and in a work context. And when you're managing organizations, you take risks about, you know, your strategic plan, where you're going to go, what, what your aims and aspirations are. And some of those involve risks, and some of them will be failures. We always had this idea, you know, we would always risk, um, take a certain amount of risks, and we, we'd write them roughly, you know, what are the chances of this succeeding? And we'd say, well, look, it's not much chance of it succeeding, but it's a good idea, and it will have some good results if it does succeed. As opposed to, on the other side, we'd say, look, it's not that good an idea, but financially it could be a real winner. Um, and somewhere in the middle, you know, you tried the balance between the financial success and the aims and, and meeting the aims and aspirations of the organisation, hopefully the individuals in there. Somewhere in the middle is the answer. So you've left work now and you're into the joy and adventure of retirement. What does that mean for you? Prior to the coronavirus, now I should have been... I think I was in Brisbane this week. I was going to be in England in July. So, you know, there's a lot of changes to, to my traveling plans. I've still got relatives overseas that I was playing catching up on. They'll just be deferred. Look, getting a routine. One thing about retirement is missing the routine, you know, missing the routine of, um, of work and meetings and, and, you know, correspondence and dealing with the day-to-day -day bits and pieces of, of running an organization. Even the traveling to work, you know, like I used to have a nice scenic drive to work every day and got used to it. I'd listen to podcasts on the radio and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's setting a new schedule up, you know, which I'm not quite there yet. You know, in, this lockdown has thrown, thrown everything into a little bit of chaos. But, you know, I've done a few things that I intend to bought a motorbike, you know. That really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've had that. I've got friends that ride, you know, so we've. I'll do some of that, do some traveling when things open up again, get a little bit fitter. Uh, you know, I've built myself a gym and you've done the usual things, blogs, you fix your shed up, you know, which is a, <laughs> which is a boring old thing we all seem to do. What do you do when you're tired? Fix the shed, tidy the shed, you know. <laughs> Fight at the house, you know, hallelujah, brother, you know, that's exciting. But one of the things that in retirement I thought that, that I thought was a bit scary, but it's a bit like a, you use the analogy of jumping when you're a kid and you're diving off the rocks into the sea and you're not sure how, is that a bit tall? You know, oh God, is that a bit, can I do that 10 foot, 20 foot jump into the water? You know, it's a bit of a leap of faith and you get that sense of excitement. And I think that's a bit with retirement too. You say, look, intellectually, if I've got 15, 20 more years to go, do I really want to keep doing the same thing or similar things? Or do I want to challenge myself to, you know, read a bit more, exercise a bit more, travel a bit more? And hopefully, you know, if you've got the financial side of it, okay. Although given the current state of the markets, that's a, that's a dubious one. 
so yeah, it's a bit more of, of a challenge, I think. And everyone I know who's, who's jumped into it, the financial side, the emotional, mental health side, the relationship side, are all things you've got to balance. But so far, I can honestly say it was, I think it was the right decision. It was the right decision for me and the right decision for the organisation. There's a, a sense of new blood and, I don't, you know, new ideas that despite my best intentions, I may have stifled. <laughs> so, so I'm pleased for that. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm optimistic about retirement. I mean, some people will never retire. I've got a brother that's an academic. You know, he's vice chancellor of King's College in England, and he's he's just finishing his tenure now, coming back to Australia. And his whole life's been, you know, sort of this this work ethic that, that I have admired, but but not desired sort of thing. <laughs> it's uh, some people's their work is their life. I always had a separate life from work and was quite pleased about that. But then, as with most men, you know, and you ask them who they are, what they are, they'll define it by what they do. And what they do is their job. So that was a bit of a transition. What do you do now? Oh, I'm retired. God, that doesn't sound too flash. You know, I'm retired. <laughs> well, you say I'm a motorbike rider. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. I'm a world traveler. <laughs> I must recall that people my age that are motorbike riders, they call them organ donors. <laughs> Oh my God, that's hilarious. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been just fabulous to have you, Rory. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and that's been great talking to you too, So Good luck with everything. Thank you. Hey, that was fun. He's a funny guy. I think what I loved about this interview, and there was lots, was Rory's gentleness and his commitment to being compassionate and kind. And you can really sense it. I've been interviewing lots of different leaders over the last few months, and, and it's really interesting to note the different energies and qualities that people bring to their leadership, and they're wonderful in each of their own different way, and that, I think, is one of Rory's key attributes, is that kindness and compassion piece. I love what he says about listening, that listening is a skill that is vastly underrated, and my colleague and friend, Oscar Trimboli, who wrote Deep Listening and has his own podcast on Deep Listening, completely agree. It's a very nuanced and integral leadership capacity. I like that from Rory. And the other piece that I liked is he said, beliefs are fact proof. And I agree with that. I see that a lot in leadership failures is when we try and change somebody's belief, their perspective by throwing facts at it. And that's not what beliefs do. That's their hard wiring. And we can actually rewire brains and rewire beliefs, but it's not with fact. It's with stories. And I love Rory's example of how he goes about doing that. It's understanding their perspective and adding layers to it, expanding that perspective. Beautiful insights. Well, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share. Just hit the little forward button on your device and spread the love. <laughs> In the meantime, have a wonderful afternoon, evening, wherever it is, whenever it is for you. And remember to live well and lead well. <laughs>